I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. In 2005, Denver Public Schools were on the verge of crisis, both financial and educational. One-third of their 98,000 seats sat vacant, while fewer than 40% of high school students were graduating on time. But over the past decade, Denver has emerged as one of the fastest-improving school districts in the state of Colorado and one of the leading examples of urban reform nationwide. Enrollment has climbed, on-time graduation rates have risen from 39 to 65%, and the percentage of students scoring at grade level in core academic subjects has risen by 15 percentage points. Meanwhile, voters have responded to the progress by electing a 7-0 majority to the school board in support of Superintendent Tom Boesberg's package of reforms. I'm Marty West, Executive Editor of Education Next, and joining me today to discuss what's been happening in Denver is David Osborne, Director of the Progressive Policy Institute's Reinventing America's Schools Project and the author of a new article, Denver Expands Choice in Charters, that was published this week on the journal's website. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today, David. My pleasure. So I want to start out by asking you why listeners should pay attention to what's going on in Denver, this one school district. What drew your attention to the city? Well, if you look around the country at districts, urban districts, big city districts that are improving rapidly, you discover that most of them are doing so because they've embraced charter schools and they've closed failing traditional public schools and replaced them with public charter schools in many cases. Uh, New Orleans is the leading example, which has 93% of its kids now in charter schools and is, I believe, the fastest improving district in the country, if not in American history. Um, very, very rapid improvement from a, from a very low level um, 10 years ago. Another example is Washington, D.C., which has uh, 45% of its kids in charters now and is getting rapid improvement. But both of those examples are somewhat insulated from local politics because they don't have elected school boards. Um, in New Orleans, the state stepped in, and in Washington, D.C., Congress created a public charter school board, which is appointed by the mayor. So Denver is interesting because it's embracing a similar strategy, moving more slowly, but a similar strategy, but with an elected school board. And as we all know, charter schools are controversial, and closing schools and replacing them with charters is controversial. And you characterize this as the portfolio model of urban district reform, right? It's often called the portfolio model or portfolio strategy, the, the idea being that a, a school board and a superintendent uh, should have a portfolio of different kinds of schools, traditional schools, charter schools, and in Denver's case, something they call innovation schools, which are about halfway in between, uh, have a lot of autonomy, but not nearly as much as charters. And the point is, in, in Denver, These strategies were very controversial. They went through four years with a 4-3 majority on the board and many, many fights and and protests and long school board meetings that went into the wee hours. Uh, But 
they produced results. And in the last two school board elections, uh, the reformers have won. They now have a 7-0 majority. So what they're showing the rest of the country is that, in fact, this strategy is possible with an elected school board. And your article makes it clear that a portfolio strategy is exactly what Denver's using, but that's not how the leaders there have always described the work that they're doing, which may tell us something about the uh, political success that they've achieved. Yeah, they've avoided the term, actually. Um, they, what they And they have never said, we're going to expand charter schools. That's part of our strategy. They've done it. But what they've talked about is simply we're going to close failing schools, poorly performing schools, and we're going to replace them with better schools. And we don't care what type of school. We're agnostic about whether it's a charter or it's a traditional school or it's an innovation school. Um, these are all public schools, and we just want better schools. That's been the political line that they've held to all along, and it has been successful, as you said. So your article lays out the narrative by which this process of reform unfolded, and it starts in 2005 with the appointment of Michael Bennett as superintendent. Can you tell us a little bit about his initial approach and how it morphed into what was ultimately occurred? Sure. Uh, when he, he was the chief of staff to the mayor, uh, Mayor Hickenlooper in 2005. So he was he knew all the political actors. He, he's an adept politician, but he also had a background in business uh, in an investment firm that turned around failing companies. So he he was familiar with this process of turnaround. He was shocked by the condition of the district when he began to learn about it intimately as superintendent. Um, it was far more dysfunctional than he had imagined. And he and the board initially chose to centralize authority. They felt that things were so bad, and there was so little data available. Um, as one board member told me, the HR system was still on note cards. Um, it you know, wasn't computerized. So they felt that they had to impose a centralized curriculum on the schools and make budget decisions at central headquarters and hiring decisions at central headquarters. And they did that for the first uh, roughly three years and then transitioned, realized through experience that that doesn't work, that what works is letting is appointing good people to run schools and giving them the autonomy they need to run the school um, and do what's necessary to improve achievement at the school level. And so they shifted to a strategy they called uh, performance empowerment, which uh, basically said, if you're doing a good job as a principal, we'll give you more and more autonomy. As I read that part of your story, I was reminded of the initial steps Joel Klein took in New York City to centralize control before, I think, adopting a strategy ultimately more similar to the one pursued in Denver. Uh, very, sim very similar uh, phenomenon, I think. And interestingly, the Denver folks paid a lot of attention to what Joel Klein was doing in New York City and learned a lot from it. So Bennett made the uh, decision relatively early on to try to encourage the growth of charters and uh, the closure of schools and reopening them as charters. He also tried to create similar conditions within schools that remained under the control of the district in what are called innovation schools. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that aspect of the strategy has played out? 
Yeah, they they uh, first they did something they called beacon schools, and it didn't have enough autonomy, and the principals were frustrated, and some of the principals began to demand more autonomy, and uh, a state legislator from Denver uh, named Peter Groff put through a bill that passed in 2008 allowing uh, for the creation of innovation schools if 50% of the teachers vote for them, and those schools could waive all or parts of the collective bargaining agreement if 60% of the teachers vote for it. So Denver began very rapidly to create innovation schools. Um, unfortunately, they haven't really bent the curve on performance. They don't perform nearly as well as a group uh, as the charters do. And it's not clear from your article that they actually have the degree of autonomy that they, in theory, were supposed to be granted. Yeah, it's been a real struggle because the central bureaucracy um, has to really change its ways to accommodate, and they haven't all got the message. The folks at the top of the uh, hierarchy get it, believe in autonomy, um, and move forward on it, and the principles of innovation schools believe what they hear, and then they run into the folks in the middle of the bureaucracy who haven't got the message. And there's just a lot of frustration. Um, it's not that they can't, you know, that their innovation school agreement will say they have this power and that power and, and the other power, and when they go to exercise them, they'll run into a transportation office that says, well, yeah, you have the power to open your school earlier than our schools, but that doesn't mean we're going to provide buses for you or, you know, any uh, any of a number of other issues. that, that they, they usually can resolve, but it takes them a lot of time working up the chain of command until they get somebody who says, okay, you have permission. Um, and that's been frustrating. As a result, four of them have led the uh, creation of something they call the Innovation Zone, uh, which is about to be approved by the board, I believe. It was approved in principle last December, but the actual agreement uh, is about has been submitted to the board. And that zone will negotiate a five-year performance agreement with the district, and that will lay out uh, a lot more autonomy for those schools. And and the zone board should be able to protect them from sort of meddling by, by the bureaucracy. So there's some hope that, that they're going to get this right eventually. Now, the individual at the very top of the bureaucracy changed, of course, in 2009 when Michael Bennett was appointed to the U.S. Senate. Tell us about Tom Bosberg and his replacement and uh, the strategy that he's pursued. Well, Tom Bosberg and Michael Bennett are friends from childhood. They went to school together at a very prestigious private school in Washington, D.C. Um, Bosberg was Bennett's deputy for uh, two or three years before he became superintendent. Uh, so it was a move by the board to, for continuity. They liked what was happening under Bennett, and they wanted to continue it, and by appointing his deputy, they knew they would continue it. And uh, Osberg has been at the helm ever since. He's actually now on sabbatical for six months, uh, but uh, has done a good job and pushed 
basically pushed forward, closed a lot of schools, replaced them with, with better-performing schools, uh, expanded the charter sector, um, but, but in a fairly careful way. I mean, Tom Bosberg is not reckless at all. He's, he's somewhat cautious. And so when they expand charter schools, for example, they, they only do it with the really high-performing charter management organizations, uh, charter networks. There's three of them. Denver School of Science and Technology, Strive Prep, and KIPP that are high-performing, and those are the ones that get to expand. Um, now, your article makes the case that uh, things are in a pretty good space politically, and in fact, that's why Denver is uh, of interest. You mentioned already in our interview the 7-0 majority on the support uh, school board in support of Bozberg, uh, the... Uh, other thing I learned recently is that uh, Bozberg is currently on a sabbatical, which probably is some sign of a uh, confidence that they are in a good position. Um, but the big question hanging over uh, this type of approach, working within the traditional governance system, even if you're trying to use that governance system in new ways, uh, is obviously sustainability. So uh, political winds can shift very carefully. What's your assessment of the uh, risk that all this could be undone if the school board changes composition? Well, there's always a risk. You know, we've, we've watched many reforms in many cities get uh, undone or stopped in their tracks by a, an election which elects different people to the school board. Um, but it's very hard to see that happening in the next, at least the next four years, three or four years in Denver. They have a 7-0 majority. They only elect, you have four-year terms on the board, and elections happen every two years. So one time you have three new members elected, the next time four new members. So it would take two elections to undo this majority. Um, and there's no sign that that will happen. The opposition is very weak, um, and there's a lot of momentum. And if anything, the board wants Bozberg to go faster. Um, and any new majority would, of course, inherit a portfolio that yeah. consists of some very high-performing charters, some schools within this innovation zone, which may ultimately have some additional insulation um, and a system in which the principle of choice has been really established through a uniform enrollment system as well. Yes, and I, I don't think you could take choice away from parents. Uh, that doesn't happen in other places. Uh, once they have it, they, they value it, and I think politically it's impossible to take it away. I don't think you could take the charters away. They're too high-performing, too popular. Uh, they're more sought after than the district-operated schools in the choice system. Um, and they're, you know, now closing in on 20 percent of this uh, enrollment uh, in Denver. So, uh, but what you could lose is the innovation schools and the innovation zone. Um, I don't think it'll happen. There's just no signs on the horizon of an uprising. Uh, if anything, it's the opposite. Um, and this innovation zone is a really important innovation. If it works, you know, a lot of districts have tried innovation schools, whether they called them pilot schools or innovation schools or something else, and they generally haven't performed nearly as well as charter schools. 
in part because they don't have as much autonomy typically, in part because they don't have as much sort of vision and entrepreneurial leadership. Um, but this zone is an attempt to give district schools the real true autonomy that charters have. Uh, and we'll see. We don't know if it'll work, but it, it is something everyone should watch. It's, it's very important. Uh, it's interesting. Indianapolis is doing something similar. Uh, they call them innovation network schools. And in that case, each school has a board which negotiates a performance agreement with the district. Um, Indianapolis is giving them more autonomy, real charter-like conditions. Um, and so both innovations are just starting. Indianapolis is in its first year. Uh, Denver's first year will be next year. Well, uh, I think that gives us a sense of what to watch on the horizon, not just in Denver, but even beyond. Exactly. Uh, exactly. So, well, thank you, David, for joining me today. Uh, and I'll remind readers that your new article on Denver Public Schools' decade-long embrace of the portfolio model of urban education is available today at educationnext.org. If, like me, you've been curious about what's been happening in Denver and eager to learn more, I can't think of a better place to start. So, David, thank you for the article, and thank you for the conversation today. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate your interest. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.